Hello and welcome to Inside the Squad, a community outreach podcast brought to you by the Lafayette Police Department in Lafayette, Indiana. Inside the Squad is hosted by Lieutenant Scott Galloway and Specialist Shauna Wainscott of the Community Outreach and Crime Prevention Unit within the department. We discuss all topics related to the day-to-day operations of the Lafayette Police Department, and we feature interviews with officers and other public safety personnel who want to give you an inside look at law enforcement. Our goal is that you find this podcast interesting and informative, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to this very special episode of Inside the Squad. I'm your host, Lieutenant Scott Galloway, and along with my good friend, Brian Gossard. So today we also have uh, City Marketing and Communications Director, Patty Payne. And uh, real quick, Brian, how are things going? Are the kids getting ready for Halloween? Yeah, it's going uh, really well. We have a couple things coming up. We have fall break, so um, drivers be mindful of uh, kids being out, not just after school, but uh, all day. And we have Halloween, so that's going to be... Uh, Watch for those posts on uh, next door about uh, hours and uh, safety. Great, a lot, lot going around town. And then, Patty, did you want to talk about a special retirement that's uh, going on in your, with your family and your future? Well, sure. Uh, I'm getting ready to make a transition from an LPD wife to an LPD retiree wife. All right, great. After 32 years, Deputy Chief Dave Payne will be stepping down, making way for somebody else to take that spot. All right, great. Um, looking forward to celebrating that. He's had a big career here at the LPD. And so for today, we've landed two very special guests, uh, Mayor of Lafayette, Tony Worsworski, and Mayor of West Lafayette, John Dennis. So today we'll be calling them uh, Tony and John for, for <laughs> being works. casual in the uh, conversation here, if that's okay. And then um, what's special about today's podcast are these are both retired LPD officers. So we want to um, talk about their careers. And the genesis of this podcast has been at, at pinning ceremonies and swearing ceremonies. The mayors will oftentimes uh, harken back to their jobs as being police officers. And we want to give them a chance to unpack that part of their life a little more, not just mention it, but really get into um, their police careers and how they've kind of landed where they are today. So, And I know we're both proud of, of them being LPD officers. This won't be a political conversation. It's just a walk down memory lane for two accomplished leaders who came from the LPD. And uh, we, we thank you guys for being here today. We have a few, ke- few questions we've prepared, so um, we'll just throw questions out your way and answer them however you can, and uh, that'd be great. Brian, you got a question? So the first question is uh, one we get a lot in our uh, hiring process or uh, captain's board. Why did you be, uh, decide to become a police officer? What drew you to the career, um, kind of your background? Well, it would, it would be really neat to be able to sit here and tell you that I was, a, you know, my undergrad degree was in criminology and I'd always idolized law enforcement and thought that it would be the greatest career path I've ever had. But in all honesty, I had spent, after I finished, uh, when I graduated from college, I moved to Ireland. And that's where I met my wife and our daughter was born. And this was in the early 80s. And if you guys were even born back then. Do you think they were? Are these guys old enough? You know, it was really nice of them to say, walk down memory lane. They think we can actually remember <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah. So that was but, nice hey, of them. Hey, you know what? As long as nobody else can, we can <laughs> yeah. say whatever we want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was the early 80s. The economy was really lousy. <clears throat> and I had a wife and a young daughter. And so um, the, the, the jobs in my field, the jobs, uh, I, my undergrad degree was in environmental engineering. There wasn't any. Uh, so I needed to do something really quickly and I was applying around and I saw that LPD was hiring. 
so I went ahead, submitted an app, and uh, the rest is rock and roll history. Um, back then, the hiring process was a little different than it ended up being because part of my duties at LPD, um, one of the things I was responsible for was hiring. Uh, basically, what they did is they called you in back then, and if you passed the polygraph and the physical, you were pretty much hired if the chief liked you. And uh, uh, actually, there was a gentleman by the name of Tom Leach. He was captain uh, back in those days, and he called me into his office and said, if you're looking for other employment, don't bother. We want to we wanna keep you. Well, not a bad idea. Um, but that's how I started. I mean, it was basically out of necessity to provide some food for the family. And uh, it was obviously, I think, one of the best decisions that I ever made. Now, were you, you had been hired before. How, what's your timeline and how was your hiring process? Yeah, you know, I got hired back in, uh, in March of 1983. And uh, I was actually a police officer down in Houston, Texas for about 18 months before I came back here to Lafayette. You know, I... Uh, um, nobody in my family was in law enforcement, but uh, back in about the eighth grade, I mean, I can still remember this clearly. Um, they had little booklets and different things about different careers, and they tried to start get you thinking about oh, yeah, what kind yeah. of career you might want to be, and they, you took little aptitude tests. And uh, the two things that really came back for me was um, a police officer and uh, to be a high school history teacher. And uh, so I kind of sat there and I thought about that and I liked history and I liked sports and I thought, well, maybe I could be a a football coach. But what I did was um, I actually ended up that summer going to the Indiana State Police Career Camp. And I think they still have that Mm -hmm. that camp. And uh, I went to that and, um, man, I came back hooked. I really knew from about eighth, ninth grade on um, that I wanted to be a, a police officer. And, uh, again, nobody in my family had ever been a police officer, so I went on to uh, Ball State after high school, graduated, went uh, through Vinton and Sunnyside and Jeff High School and went over to Ball State and played some football over there and studied criminal justice and corrections. And uh, back in those days, the Houston was growing by leaps and bounds, I, if I remember right, because of oil prices. And they were hiring policemen and sending police recruiters different places. And some of them came to Ball State. And, uh, man, I looked at those guys jumping out of those helicopters <laughs> and, you know, riding those horses and motorcycles and said, put me in coach. And I drove down to Houston and uh, went through the hiring process and got hired on down there, learned a lot. It was a big learning curve for me, a a kid from the north end of Lafayette who hadn't traveled a lot to go to a city of that size and a police department of thousands and thousands of police officers. Quite frankly, I saw things didn't know existed, but I got a lot of experience. But I always wanted to come back to my hometown, and when there was an opening then back here in Lafayette, I came back in and got sworn in, I believe it was March 5th of of uh, 1983, and so it was just kind of a dream of mine from about 8th or ninth grade on, even though nobody in my family had been policemen. I got to do some ride-alongs in high school, came down and did some ride-alongs with some officers, uh, Denny Brady and Terry Thompson and some folks that were policemen back then. And Great, great role models, buddy. <laughs> and uh, um, so we, uh, you know, I just something I always wanted to do and then ended up going to college to, to study criminal justice and corrections at Ball State. So when we were growing up, we uh, had a little bit of an advantage where we could see uh, what police work was kind of like by TV shows like Cops. Yeah, um, yeah. You you probably watched movies, so Hollywood uh, renditions. Oh, it of. wasn't even movies. I mean, I think that the think back to the seventies, if you will, <laughs> the black and white era. Um, Adam Twelve. I mean, that was the first <laughs> real 
You know, I mean, that's the first real commercial exposure that law enforcement had, at least the uniform law enforcement had. We always had the detective shows. But that really wasn't as impactful as, as what we have now. I mean, when I think back, when we think back to when we were on the street, um, even what you guys are dealing with now, we had a different negotiation style than what you guys have. A lot of what you use now is something that could be presented on TV because it often is. You know, we, we didn't have to have that type of... Uh, third world environment where people could actually see what we're doing at the time and that's probably not a bad thing mr so mayor when you when you first started uh the job you had one idea of what police work was like mm-hmm. going in what what were some of the uh um i guess real world experiences that kind of uh surprised you or took you off guard yeah i mean to play on what john was saying you know because uh, you're right i mean there was very little media attention and it's especially here in our community so i really started that first job in in houston um only from really what i know what i read in some books and going to that state police career camp i can't tell you that i took that first day and i really knew what that job was going to entail and of course what i did learn in, in college and and uh things like that but you know, for me, and I, I know for John over time, too, it was just something that was innate in you. I mean, I'd like to tell you, as John said, I'd like to tell you that I just took the job because I had this just deep passion Indeed. to help people, yeah. right? Because that's kind of the answer that you hear. I mean, the reality is I took that job because I wanted to catch bad guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to try to make a difference in the community by catching people that were hurting other people. I mean, that for me, that's the way I kind of looked at it back then. And like I said, Houston was a real eye-opening experience because I didn't understand that people could be that cruel to people and Mm -hmm. to each other. And I saw things that we just didn't really hear about in Lafayette, Indiana, Mm -hmm. uh, back at that particular time. And so, but over time, um, you know, you begin to understand what the job uh, really is. There are, there are great opportunities to help people make a difference. There are those fleeting moments of an intense danger. We all know now that that's not the majority of the time that we spend doing that. But I think for me, that's what the um, greatest thing about being in the law enforcement career is that you really do to get that opportunity to help um, uh, people on an individual basis and make a difference in people's individual lives, lives. And then you can also do things that actually impact the entire community by uh, the way you handle an investigation or maybe an arrest that you make uh, or maybe the way you handle a SWAT operation. Um, and so, you know, for me, that is incredibly rewarding. And the, the, the job actually evolved into and was more than I anticipated, but it was actually better than I realized at the time. And that really is, I think, a learning pr- uh, process for all of us. And as John said, the job is much different now. Mm-hmm. Some things are very similar, but it's also different. And that's a good segue. Being mayors of cities, um, what changes have you noticed in law enforcement? Obviously, technologies, things like that from hiring on in 83. <coughs> and Mayor John, when did you get hired? 84. 84. Yeah, so has got about a year on um, what are some of the major changes? Um, obviously, technology, but what are some of the bigger things you've seen? Whether it's the public probably reactions the biggest, or yeah, the biggest thing that, that that we've seen is there was back in our day on the street there was a real bright line between people who do wrong and people who make mistakes and law enforcement. Um, we all had people that we knew every night when we go out, we work nights together, and every night that we'd go out we had people that we knew, people that we knew would be out, and we'd either use you know our contacts to get information or the people that we didn't know, we would have a a very immediate and sometimes aggressive response. 
uh, one of the things that you did not have to worry about was sort of that third eye. I mean, it was just us and them. And unfortunately, to some degree, that was the relationship. You know, depending upon the circumstances and the situations you were involved in, it might be that sort of combat mentality when you're going on calls, specifically in certain areas of the community. There were areas that were just had a reputation for being a little rougher than others. Um, in the early days of our careers, there were still a lot of um, a lot of folks that had been around and influenced the generation of law enforcement before we got there, and their reputations were pretty strong, and it was always – uh, sort of situational into where they were. So we would get a little more aggressive in our approach to how to handle some of these folks and even some of their family members. Uh, the second thing was is that you really didn't – law enforcement had much more influence on how things went, not just on the street but in the courtrooms. Uh, if a police officer got on the stand and said, this is what I saw and I swear, the jury – unanimously agreed with that. Uh, we had a stellar reputation specifically in the Lafayette Police Department about how things were done and our, our ability to recant that or at least to discuss that um, in front of a jury. But probably most importantly was is that the expectation on the part of the community um, was a little bit more removed, a little bit more distant. Um, you wouldn't, um, for instance, the Internal Affairs Office uh, at LPD during the, from the 80s probably to about, I don't know, Tony, maybe the mid-90s, was a pretty quiet place to work. Um, there would often be people that would call up and make complaints, and the preliminary investigator would ask, you know, what happened, and then they would go ahead and take the complaint and file it. Because if the complaint was predicated on a response that an officer had to somebody's behavior, and if it was justified, then it wouldn't get any follow-up. Um, second off, there, there was this element of trust between the community and law enforcement. Um, they knew what our mission was. They knew what we were there for, and they trusted us to do that. Um, a lot has happened, both good and bad, since that time. But if a policeman told somebody to do something, nine times out of ten, they would do it. And, and obviously we've moved on from that. How about you, Mr. Mayor? Any changes that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, I think to, just to follow up on that a little bit, but I think it's coming full circle. And I think this podcast today um, speaks to a lot of that, of what, how we're coming full circle. You know, when I would, was young and I rode around with some police officers, you know, they had lots of time and ability to stop at a ball game and just talk to people. And they had abilities to stop at the Boys and Girls Club or different things like that. The call volume wasn't as great. And so they'd sit down in some place in a restaurant and eat with three or four other people maybe. And, of course, when we worked nights, there really wasn't many places. The only thing – people are not going to believe this, but literally the only thing opened all night back then was the Waffle House out of yeah, 26, out of 26 and 65. And Literally, that yeah. was the only place to go eat. After a while, Burger King mm-hmm. stayed open a little later. But well, no, Mr. Donut was open it, too, but just not for... Yeah, not for everybody yeah, though. And yeah. so, uh, you know, they had that relationship in the community. Most people knew who the, the policemen were. They had some family member that knew them and there was that, that connection. But as Society grew, and our city along with it, and people become more involved in technology. People's lives became busier. Those relationships um, changed. They changed over time, and it was a little bit harder for people to see the police department as part of the community and the community uh, and the police officers to see themselves as part of the community and the community to see the police officers as part of their daily lives. And, you know, I think that happened everywhere throughout the country over, over a period of time. 
And, you know, that was really unfortunate because, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed the most back then was really having those personal relationships, literally driving through neighborhoods, people waving, stopping places, going to eat somewhere, sit down. Um, but what we see now is that re-engagement I, from both sides. I see, I see that full circle. I see the community realizing, um, again, the, the importance that law enforcement plays in their community, their quality of life, their safety, how they can help with their children. And law enforcement sees that need also now. As it's not just us against them, that the community is our eyes and ears. They can help us solve crimes. Uh, they can help us be partners in, in many other community issues. And so... We see the community taking steps in organizations, and then we see what we're doing here at LPD with the community outreach that we're doing, with the di- uh, division that we've created uh, to do those types of community out, to have a podcast like this that gets information out to the city, what we're doing with the next door platform. And so I think that full circle is coming around through, it's a little different because it's technology use, but it also is getting back to that one-on-one. What are we doing at Hannah Center? What are we doing in those neighborhoods? And for me, that's gratifying because I think that's sending us in the right direction. So you both came on uh, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, you had some significant cultural changes at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you lived it uh, mm-hmm. within the law enforcement uh profession. Mm-hmm. So I know you have an interesting story about um, so a, a health epidemic that was kind of nationwide oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, really affected you. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, it was, it, it, it's strange because to even discuss this now, it seems so alarmist. You know, we've, we've technology, science, medicine has advanced so much since those days. But this was in the early days of my career. It was actually in 1986. Um, I was dispatched to a call of an attempted suicide up in an apartment. It was, it was actually started as a fight call and ended up as an attempted suicide. And the way we always did it is us night guys. Uh, remember the hobby? We used to line our cars up in the back of the parking lot. There was an old hobby store. And it would be the late cars and the early cars uh, getting ready to go ahead and go off duty. And so because everybody was in waiting, uh, calling out in my district, I was District 3, and so I went ahead and responded to the call. And it was some people that we generally knew, and I go upstairs and uh, do the usual, hey, is anybody here? Um, I was met by a guy, and he said, yeah, so-and-so's inside, and he's hurt. So I go in there, and I walk around. I can't find him. I go into the bathroom, and he's lying in a tub of hot water, and the water's just filled with blood. And he's dressed in a teddy and has a long wig on. So, again, back in those days, the first thing you do, when and his wrists were slashed. You see two open wounds, the first thing you do is you apply pressure. Uh, we weren't afraid of blood back then. Uh, we knew that it was just part of the job. So I applied, applied pressure, and then he was out, and his eyes opened up, and then he started to resist. And uh, he hops out of the tub, and we're fighting then. And he's the, the water's just completely tainted with blood. He's got the wig. He takes it off, runs it through the water, and starts slapping me with the wig. And then we get around each other, and he starts biting and scratching me. And I push him away, and then he says, I have AIDS. Now you have AIDS too. So then we continue to fight and all that kind of stuff, get him under control. And by then, backup comes. And then because it was a, a medical run, the, the paramedics come. And then his roommate who was his boyfriend, comes up and says, oh, by the way, he has AIDS. So we knew nothing about that at that time, and we thought it was a dietary aid. We had no idea what AIDS actually meant. 
And so the immediate response was everybody just, they, we just knew it was bad. So everybody backs off. And uh, it, w- it was kind of odd because I felt as though I had automatically just been, you know, um, I, I had some contagious disease and I said nobody would go near that me. sentence. Yeah, well, not even that. But, I mean, it was, it was as if I had been contaminated by something and nobody wanted to be around me. So we ended up putting this guy on the back of a, in a gurney and getting him down downstairs, and he was still combative. And so the paramedics asked me to ride in the back of the ambulance with him because I had already been exposed. And we took him to um, Sandy, the emergency room. And same thing, he was still combative, still combative, still combative. And so they ended up subduing him with like a 1,000 cc's of Thorazine, and he finally went out. <clears throat> and the doctor there uh, asked what happened, and I told him. And so he put me into a holding room, and uh, they called a specialist. And it was a specialist that had come up from Indianapolis. She was a, a contaminated or an HIV specialist and also was a specialist in communicable diseases. diseases yeah. Yeah. And so she came up, and she made me take off all my gear, and they put it into a bag, and they steamed it or bleached it or something, gave me some, gir- or some scrubs to wear. And then she went through this process of explaining what had just happened to me. And again, remember, 1986, <clears throat> she said, you've had a significant exposure to the AIDS virus. You're going to need to be tested every month, or no, every week for three months, then every month for a year to see if you convert. And in the interim, you're going to have to refrain from having contact with your friends and family members. And I said, well, what does that mean? And then she said, do you have any kids? And I said, yeah, I've got one little girl, and I'm married, obviously. And I said, well, no intimacy between you and your wife, and try and stay away from your daughter as much as you can. I said, well, every morning when I get off work, you know, we share cereal in the morning. And she said, well, don't do that. Just, just tell her you got a cold or something. So, okay. So immediately that word got back out to the department. And again, by this time, it was probably 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I ended up going home and went to bed. Of course, didn't sleep a wink, then came back in. Uh, they called me in at like sometime that afternoon. And the chief at that time said, you know, we don't know what to do with you, basically. We don't know how to deal with this. Uh, we don't know if we can, you know, if you can continue on as a police officer because you potentially have a communicable disease that could be deadly. Um, so they offered me the year off with pay. Now, if I'd had that now, I would <laughs> pick me. But again, you know, in your early twenties, and it's like you're the dauntless defender of justice. So it's no, I'm going to stay here and just fight the good fight. So, in essence, they they put me in a bubble. Um, uh, we had a lot of guys that had great senses of humor about it <laughs> on the police department. Um, so, I mean, actually, the, my brothers on the police department made it a lot easier. And then there were some that, that weren't so generous. There were some that refused to rise or to use the same squad car that I used uh, when they took it over from the shift. Because back in those days, the, the car stuck, but the officers came in and went. So, yeah, it was a life-altering experience. We, you know, the, the dark side was is that, I mean, we spent a year scared to death. Um, but I guess if there is a bright side, I, got, I was on the Oprah Winfrey show because I was the first police officer in the country to have had this kind of exposure. Um, the second thing was is that we went ahead and went to trial on this, and we, we set a legal precedent by charging him with attempted murder via a deadly weapon, which was biological. And I, I know that sounds cliche now, but back in the early 80s, that had never been done before. So we set a legal precedent as well. So 
it, it was weird then, um, and it's kind of weird now to think of how we responded to it. Um, but, you know, everybody, I think, throughout the history of their life has these, these moments where they can say, that changed my life, and that was, that was a big change for me. Uh, so following up on that, um, Mayor Tony, I know you um, – did you start the SWAT team or you were pretty integral in the SWAT team and kind of going off stories of uh, what Mayor Dennis had said. Can you talk a little bit about your SWAT career and, and kind of how you um, have made it as robust as it is today? Well, I didn't start the SWAT team. The SWAT team actually started back in the late 70s, so I didn't start the SWAT team. But I actually do have – uh, the first ever uh, sniper rifle that was uh, purchased by the Lafayette uh, SWAT team uh, when they finally got rid of it and upgraded some uh, some weapons. So that's an important piece of memorabilia that I have. So um, I got on the SWAT team pretty quickly once I got back here from Houston and started out as you know a member of an entry squad, kind of what you do, and then through promotional opportunities, stayed on the SWAT team through the rank of sergeant and lieutenant. And, uh, and then as captain of patrol, certainly with the oversight and administration of that. But during that time, we really did make some significant uh, strides in, uh, in, in the way that we trained. We began to look at uh, training from a much different way. We realized we were becoming more and more in an urban environment. We needed to train more in an urban environment. Uh, we needed to create our training that was much more realistic than we'd done in the past, uh, simply not just shooting at targets that were on a post. And so we began a lot of different training, movement shooting, where we would move and shoot, where we would roll and shoot, where we would actually live fire over each other's shoulders. Uh, so we got used to having the weapons that close to us. We set up many scenarios um, that actually incorporated the use of flashbang, grenades, tear gas, uh, and actually begin to do all of those things that we would, for the first time, would actually do if there was a SWAT uh, call out all the things that might happen, we began to actually practice them, not just talk about them and then do some shooting at targets, but actually practicing those things, using our gas masks, using those flashbangs, using live ammunition. And, uh, you know, I will never forget, uh, I'll tell on myself just a little bit, the very first live fire that we did, we went way out in the country, out by Attica somewhere, and uh, we got we were in an old farmhouse that we had got permission to use. Literally nobody for miles, and uh, we put squad cars on the four corners. You know how the county roads are, just to make sure that uh, everybody um, cars couldn't get too close to us while we're doing live fire. And we literally went through a scenario with dummies set up in different rooms, and a scenario where police officers fired live ammunition as the uh, situation presented themselves. We controlled it, but they were firing live ammunition with their SWAT members moving back and forth, ducking down. We made it as realistic as we humanly could. And uh, the good thing was we got through that. Nobody got hurt. It made us better. The unusual thing that happened was that somehow a round that went off Somehow. Went down uh, of a handgun, uh, went through all the rooms of the house, went down a cornfield, and must have hit, as it left the house, something that sent it on an angle, and actually shot out the window of the squad car that was watching one of the uh, uh, corners for us with the two officers standing about this far apart right between it. So... 
Um, I think the good Lord was watching out for us that day because he knew we were trying to do the right things for the right reasons to protect our citizens better and to make ourselves safer in the future. But uh, um, I think I was a lieutenant when that happened, and I I had to come back, and I had some explaining to do. Who who was the chief at that time? Was it Gene? No, no. No. That would have been 1992 or 3. So it's Tom. Tom Leach, probably, Mm -hmm. yes. Oh, you had to write a Dear Chief letter. I had to write a Dear Chief letter. (laughs) I had a form Dear Chief letter. Chief letter, didn't you? I mean, my God. (laughs) But it it really did make us better. I mean, when you train like that, you are more prepared for when something really happens. And they they still have that kind of stuff today. It's their their shoot houses. There's some ballistic protection. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, you guys have a – that is the big difference. I mean, back then we were still wearing the old-style vest, <laughs> and, but now with, uh, uh, with the new shields and different things like that, it, it's a lot different. But I, I, I know our SWAT team throughout the county do a great job. But, yeah, during that period, we made substantial upgrades and changes to the way we trained and prepared. And you were still trying to figure it out, trying to – you know, come up with tactics. And it was really new. It was really new for us at the right. time. We went to, uh, that was the first time we went to H&K MP5s. So we upgraded our sniper rifles. We upgraded all of our entry weapons. We were doing a lot of different training. You know, we, had, we used to have to repel to get on, be able to repel to be, get on the SWAT team. And, uh, and it was, it paid off. We needed to do things with heights. Many of you probably remember Ira Mukes, mm-hmm. who, uh, committed several very serious crimes in our community, including the shooting of a girl that was about 12 years old. She lived at the time. She lived, thank God. Uh, but, you know, when we caught him, the night we caught him, that uh, uh, down on Ferry Street, we had to climb the fire department's aerial and jump off that aerial ladder under the top of that apartment building and do the assault from the top down. And, and uh, so, you know, you, you don't have to do that stuff a lot, but you need to be able to be prepared when you have to do it. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And the two of you, Tony and John, the, the community sees your camaraderie and they know that you've had a lengthy history together. Mm. Everybody appreciates that. Do you have a story <laughs> that would amuse us of the two of you, something that, that not everybody knows? I got one. Well, go ahead. I'll let you go first, but be careful. <laughs> one thing I won't forget, we are elected, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. we are. Yeah. Um, I, I was raised in a military family. My father was a commander in the Navy. He was a pilot. brother was a pilot in Vietnam. And so the, the, the military environment was something I was very familiar with. But having said that, being t- typically rebellious, the military environment was something that I wasn't really very fond of. So during my college years, I was typical for my age group and did what kids do when they're in college. I hired on the Lafayette Police Department. And again, early 80s, everything was high and tight. There was a lot of Clarino, a lot of shiny badges. um, But it wasn't really the military. So um, I did my thing, went to the academy and all that kind of stuff, got back, was assigned a car, worked midnight to 8. And because of the shift that I work, and I had a reputation uh, eventually because I was relatively familiar with a lot of the folks down there and I had a rather casual approach to getting things done, um, I started to let my hair grow. And um, it, it, it grew comparatively longer than most law enforcement professionals of the day. And my partner, Tony, um, was the other way. We got a picture of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, photographic we'll evidence. You know? yeah. I probably had some of it pulled back in that picture, too. 
Um, Tony was a little different. He, he, he really did. I mean, if you needed to have a picture of a police officer, Tony was it. He, he wore the campaign hat just right. He had the look. He had the build. He has the build. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> he can still throttle me, so I'm not going to get too. Um, I didn't. So anyway, we roll call back in those days was physical. You'd go down into a room. All the officers that were coming on shift would be there. All the officers that were coming off shift would be there. You'd exchange information. Your sergeant, or lieutenant, you know, your shift commander would get up there and start giving you stuff for the night, and then he'd send you out. Uh, well, I would go. I was a little late, so I got down there a little late. And Tony's sitting down there in a chair, and there were three other cops in there, and we're sitting down there, and I'm standing up. And Tony kind of looks at me standing in the doorway, and he starts shaking his head like this. And I'm thinking, is he having a bad day or what? And finally he goes, you know, you need to get a haircut. And I'm thinking, who are you? What do you mean I need to get a haircut? And Tony used to wear his hair so tight that you could see the top of his skin <laughs> through his hair. I mean, it was just, it was like flat top skin. It's funny how that's changed now, Hannah. Look at your head. Yeah, look at your head. She's cruel. Isn't that ironic? Well, anyway, so, so he sits there, and I'm standing there all bushy and flurry and looking like uh, God only knows who. Um, and he starts, this is a real cop's haircut. You need to go back to wherever you got that haircut done to get a real cop's haircut. And I'm looking at this like, man. I feel like I'm a real enough cop. I don't need the haircut. And he just starts shaking his head. So he walked out and just kind of gave me a nose up on it. So, And that was – I knew then that we would be together for life. <laughs> you know, John and I used to – we did used to run a lot of calls together oh, and even yeah. rode together sometimes. And we, we always did have a joke that if, if uh, the, the person was really – took off running uh, – <laughs> It was, I was good for the first 40 yards, and after John, it was, after that, it was going to be up to John to, yep. to catch him. And if he caught him and they were really too big, he was just supposed to try to keep him contained until I got, got there, there then. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we had a very good relationship. We did a lot of things on the range. We did a lot of things in detectives mm-hmm. together. Um, there's a couple things John has never let me live down to tell him myself a little <laughs> bit. We were patrolling the north end one night, and uh, I was uh, – We'd had several break-ins down there of stereos, and I happened to come around a corner and uh, um, saw a guy breaking into a car. And so I turned my lights off real quick, tried to sneak up on him, but he he saw me coming and took off. So I pulled the car off the side of the road and jumped out of the car and chased him for a little bit, and he tried to jump a fence, and I kind of just ran through the fence <laughs> and knocked the fence down on top yeah, of him. he didn't him. have much sky level. I mean, he's <laughs> just pretty a direct guy. And got him and, and walked back to the car and started to walk back to the car, and I couldn't find the car. Where's I couldn't the car? find the Oops. car. And I, then I hear John la- laughing over the radio <laughs> and then laughing at me. I said, where's my car? I don't know where his car. Well, he would saw it, and he'd come to help, but uh, unfortunately I had not – got the car all the way in park and the car had backed a significant distance down the road and hit another car. And, uh, um, I didn't, I heard about that for quite some time. Yeah, and you still John, do. Yeah. Some time hey, for Tom, John. let's go, Tony, put your car in park. Yeah, let's go. So, uh, well, the best one was when you saved my life though. Yeah. I, I didn't know if you wanted me to bring that up. Yeah, or go not. ahead. So, so, we're amongst friends here. Okay. So, um, John and I were both in detectives and, uh, I'd taken to the John 
to the range several times as I was a firearm instructor to uh, try to get him proficient with his handgun. Again, try. John is a great communicator. <laughs> Shooting is not his forte. A forte. And, uh, but a great communicator. Mm. And so, again, because of his rebelliousness, <laughs> uh, I always wore my weapon in a, spe- a holster that was had safety standards to it, handcuffs in certain places. Everything done safely, concealed in a way we're in detectives. Well, John had a tendency. He'd just come in and he'd just shove his gun down the front of his pants or the back of his pants, right? <laughs> and one day he did that, and he walked into roll call. We were ready to do it. And I looked over at him. I said, John. I said, John, don't, don't move. I said, John. And he's looking at me like, yeah, you're messing with me again. What's wrong with my hair? You know, or something. I said, no, really, don't, don't move. And he said, why? What is the matter? I said, look down. Your gun is cocked. And he had caught the hammer of his revolver on his belt Mm -hmm. as he was pushing it down. And literally in the front, he was walking around with that handgun cocked. And as we all know, those old wheel guns, once they're cocked, it almost takes no pressure Mm -hmm. for that to go off. So I walked over. I slid my hand in between the hammer and the pin, mm-hmm. so if it accidentally discharged, it would hit the top of my hand and not make contact. And then Pulled slowly slipped uh, it out. Pulled her out. We decocked the, the weapon. <clears throat> yeah. him, so. And I went to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I never really have let him <laughs> lift that one down. Yeah. Did you get in the holster after that? Or did you well, no, go back no, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> that was my bad experience. It's got to be good from here on out. But it was. I mean, because I, mean, I was leaning in to the roll call room. And Tony says, don't, John, don't move. And I thought there was somebody behind me. <laughs> you know? And then he starts. I look down. It's like, oh, no. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. And we've been best buds ever, ever since. since. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I have a kind of a two-part question. You seem to have a really good relationship mm-hmm. uh, now. And the cities and agencies in this county work very well together. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is. Has that always been the case uh, as long as you can remember? No, no. And what what experiences did you have here that made you want to continue your uh, civil service in uh, as mayors? It used to be, again, you know, when I first hired on LPD, I've always been a Westside guy. I was lived there all my life, went through the school system on Westside, the whole bit. Well, you were born in Japan, actually. Well, I know. Yeah. I have the international flavor, but they're both. <laughs> Most of my life in West Lafayette. Um, when I came over, I was an anomaly. You know, I was the West Side guy on the police department. And it wasn't necessarily derogatory, but it was just I was not a homegrown guy. And so there was a little bit of a different flavor then. Um, but I really wasn't very much aware of how the departments interacted. You know, when I got time on and uh, kind of started figuring out what I was going to do, I would meet with some of the West Side guys just on this side of the river. Back then, on the east side of the river, it was a big parking lot. There was dial lumber, and so I'd meet some of the midnight guys from West Side, and we'd just sit and hang around and talk. And one of them I actually went to the academy with, so there was that relationship. But with the exception of if Purdue would lose their mind and there'd be something, I don't really remember us having a lot of interactivity. Um, and then again, this sounds a little negative, but you know what we dealt with in Lafayette was immensely different than what was being dealt with in West Lafayette. We, we had some real issues that we needed to resolve. We had some, some things that needed to be done because it was an urban environment, and, and West Side was more treetops and rooftops. Um, 
but it, it wasn't an adversarial relationship. I mean, it was collegial, but it just there just wasn't a whole lot of interactivity. Um, the cities themselves, I'm really not sure. I mean, I was pretty busy doing what I was doing. I really wasn't that politically aware. Um, I know that, that Mayor Marjoram and Mayor Reilly got along pretty well. Um, but I, I, I don't think, and I'm going to make a, a kind of a bold statement, I don't think the cities have ever gotten along as well as they do now. I mean, when you grow up with somebody and you have trust, you trust that somebody, um, there are times when I'll just look at Tony and say, I'm out of words. Just go ahead and finish it for me. And he will. You know, and if he needs needs me to cover an event for him, I will. And we know within certain parameters, things will go exactly <laughs> how we want them. The, the other side of it is, is if it's in Lafayette, I know somebody will tell him what I say, and then the <laughs> next time that he covers for me, it'll come back to bite me. Yeah. So, well, I, I think I think John's right. You know, I think with most things in life, um, when you develop relationships with people. Um, early on, that makes a huge difference on how things move forward, and particularly with police work where you have to be with each other through some very difficult times, uh, times of great happiness, but also times of great sadness, Mm -hmm. sometimes on a personal level and sometimes seeing other people go through such pain and tragedies in their lives, making difficult notifications to tell parents their child's died in a car accident Mm or other things have happened like that. I think when you share those types of experiences and those types of emotional highs and lows, you do develop um, relationships that allows you to carry through a lot of things. And I think that's been very beneficial uh, for John and I as, as we've uh, moved forward because we shared so many times like that. And I, I remember you know, exactly when he went through that situation and what that time frame was mm-hmm. like for him. And, and uh, you know, we've done everything from... Uh, I gave him a dog house for his first dog. <laughs> and I let my dog play at your house when we were building it? He helped me, he helped me build my first house that, we, that I built. And my dad and I and John and some other LPD guys came out. And, and, uh, and so when you have those types of lifelong experiences, it really helps. And I think because of that and the communication that we have uh, with the county commissioners now, I do think John's right. I think that, that cooperation is at an unprecedented level. Most people have forgot, just to go back a little bit, that – um, when we talked about SWAT, that for a while there was a countywide SWAT team. Uh, myself oh, yeah. and uh, uh, Dave Murtal, Tom Murtal's brother. Dave was the sheriff of Tippecanoe County for two terms. Dave was a lieutenant at the time, and I think I was a lieutenant at the time. We started a countywide uh, SWAT team that was Lafayette and West Lafayette and mm-hmm. Tippecanoe County and um, did some things like that. And so there always has been, I think, those relationships and that sense of professional courtesy. But I think John's right. I think it's probably better now than it's ever been on, on the governmental level and, and the law enforcement level. And that bodes well for all of us, uh, mm-hmm. for the law enforcement people, for our citizens, as we look at economic development, community development, public safety, you name it. When you have that type of collaboration and cooperation, people pulling on the same side of the rope, uh, it just enables you to get a lot more done than you'd be able to do on your own. And, and uh, we certainly look forward to continuing that. Well, I think even back in the day um, when I was deputy chief, that's when we first started having the meetings, the monthly meetings with all the chiefs. I mean, and again, that was state police. It, back, it used to be DNR. Mm-hmm. The drug task force guy would come in, and all the local agencies. So your, your legacy continues, and um, I know you guys got meetings to go to and uh, tight schedules at, um, throughout the rest of the night. So we want to thank you for taking a little bit of time today to 
chat down again memory lane of your police careers it's, it's fun we, this we, is cool we really appreciate mm-hmm. we appreciated the opportunity and thank you for what you guys are doing for your community outreach it's just phenomenal mm-hmm. and i asked patty i go what should we call these guys and we became a legendary lpd guy so uh <laughs> you're, the, you're the beginning you're yeah. the beginning of the legend there you legends in our own mind right so yeah. uh yeah. yeah again appreciate you guys being here and um doing a great job and we appreciate everything you do thanks guys all right thank, thank you, you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Squad from the Lafayette Police Department in Lafayette, Indiana. Be sure to check out past episodes and subscribe for new ones on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a question for the show, you can email it to podcast at lafayette.in.gov or connect with us on Nextdoor, Twitter, and on our website, lafayettepolice.us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Inside the Squad. Inside the Squad.